Before we move into this morning's message, I want to give credit where credit is due from Friday night. The Chile champion, Chris Staub, and I want to... I also want to quell any rumors, which I may have started, that uh, the fix was in and she won unfairly. That's not true. Don't believe it. If anybody tells you that, even me. We have the costume champion, Dave Elan, the farmer in the Dell. Don't you love it? Huh? You see his little mouse there? Huh? We also have the candy guest adult champ, Karen Chupat. Last but not least, the candy guest kid champ, Corey Lawrence. Actually, that's, that's not last but not least. Last but not least is the pumpkin carving champ, which was Jerry Dunn. And he's very thankful for that. If you can't read it, that's what the pumpkin says. So, Anyway, this morning, the title of this message is Killing My Old Man. No, the rather odd but hopefully memorable title of this morning's message is not a murder mystery. It's not a spy story. It's not science fiction. It's not fantasy. Though we'll find some of those kinds of stories do provide some helpful illustrations. Actually, that, uh, the sermon title this morning is actually from a song title of an old Christian rock song by a band named Petra. Anybody remember this? That's the title of that uh, song called Killing My Old Man, and I thought of it this morning. This morning's sermon actually deals with a command in Scripture that we don't often consider. The title of this morning's service is taken from the language we see in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, where it says, knowing this, that our old man, some versions say old self, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin or slaves of sin. But the theme of this morning's message is also from two different verses that we'll spend some time exploring today, where we find this command to kill our old man, or as again, as some versions say, to kill our old self. First, we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. That's what's on the cover of your bulletin this morning. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And a parallel passage, which says something very similar in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In both of these verses, we see this very strong imperative, put to death, kill. The Puritans called this idea mortification. Some of you may have heard that word before. Mortification, the putting to death of sin in our lives. It's death to the old self, the self that was, past tense, the self that was a slave to sin. Before we were redeemed from slavery to sin and became slaves of Christ. My thinking on this morning's message actually began with two recent sermons here at TCF. And a great little book I read in preparation for this morning called Licensed to Kill by an author named Brian Hedges. The sermons were the one two weeks ago and three weeks ago. If 
by Jim Grinnell, uh, the very same Jim Grinnell you saw getting sponges in his face a moment ago. And before that, Dave Elin, yes, the farmer in the Dell. Both of these sermons, Jim's sermon and Dave's sermon, included a reference to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is a very clear illustration of the reality of our human existence as followers of Christ. We have in ourselves this ongoing, constant battle between good and evil. We're in an ongoing battle between that old man, our old selves, which were owned and enslaved to sin on the one hand, and then the new man, our new selves, who are slaves of righteousness, bought and paid for by the King of Kings, our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a few scholars that believe that Romans 7, in, in Romans 7, that Paul is actually referring to the way that he was before his Damascus Road experience and encountered the risen Christ. But most scholars have come to believe, what I have come to believe as well, that Paul is describing his daily ongoing struggle with sin. This is a struggle which began the moment that he believed and continues until the moment of his death. And I believe that it does that for all of us. Because of this reality, Paul gives us these admonitions in Romans 8 and in Colossians 3 that we just read. Kill your old man. Put to death the sinful self. Let's look at a portion at the end of Romans 7 and see if any of us here can identify with Paul's ongoing struggle. We're going to read from Romans 7, beginning with verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of the Lord in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now Dave Eland, when he looked at this chapter of Scripture, he looked at it in the context of doing God's will rather than our own. And Jim Grinnell, when he looked at this chapter, he looked at it in the context of our identity in Christ. In other words, noting that the real me is the one highlighted in verse 22, the one that Scripture says is uh, delighting in the law of God in my inner being. Yet the reality is the same for all of us who are truly in Christ, truly redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We want to do God's will. We want to identify with Christ, but we struggle, don't we? Keith Green wrote a song years ago based on Romans 7, and some of those lyrics in that song read, There are things I hate I end up doing, things I want to do I just don't do. Lord, it seems so sad. Why am I so bad? when in my heart I only want to be like you. So we see this battle between good and evil 
this great human drama inside each one of us. We see some great illustrations of this in popular culture and in literature, don't we? How about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Inside the same person, but one's good and one's evil. I think of um, also Smeagol and Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. How about that? Is that what you want to look like when you're captured by sin? Smeagol, who had given in to sin to take the ring of power for himself, deceived that it would bring him power at all, and it only corrupted his soul as sin came increasingly to own him, and he became the evil Gollum. Yet we see this inner dialogue even after sin owned Smeagol, and he was turning into Gollum more and more. We see the good trying to resurrect itself. Gollum's dialogue in the story, if you've seen it or or, uh, read it, sounds a lot like Paul's inner dialogue in Romans chapter 7. How about Anakin Skywalker in the Star Wars movie? Trying to do good but losing out to the dark side in the end and becoming the evil Darth Vader. Brian Hedges writes in the book I mentioned, License to Kill, He writes this, the story of the young Jedi Knight's temptation and fall resonates with me because it is not that different from the way sin tricks and tempts me. Palpatine knows exactly how to push Anakin's buttons. He seduces the knight by seizing on his passionate love for his bride and his compulsive fear of losing her, by undermining his trust in his true mentors and friends, and by clouding his mind with deceptive promises of power. In much the same way, indwelling sin seizes on my passions and my fears, undermines my confidence in God and his word, and clouds my head with a fog of shrewd lies and false promises. So many stories, we could cite many others, that deal with this battle between good and evil that's going on inside each of us. And these stories are compelling and interesting, and they kind of grab our attention because they are so relatable and personal to us. But so few of them offer any solutions. And many that do are not helpful solutions, let alone biblical solutions. But thanks be to God, as Paul says, the Word of God does offer solutions, and it starts with the gospel, the shed blood of Jesus that not only provides forgiveness for our sins, but also releases us from captivity, from slavery to sin. Any effort to kill our sin nature that does not start from this firm foundation is doomed to failure before you begin. That's because until you are no longer slaves to sin, you do not have the ability, you do not have the power or the strength to begin to bring the death blows against the sin nature that remains so stubborn in your heart. But then assuming that we're in Christ... We're believers redeemed by him, which is my assumption for most of us, at least here this morning. Paul gives us this command in Romans 8 and Colossians 3, the command to put to death the sin nature inside of us, and even mentioning specific kinds of sins. But let's think about that idea for just a moment. Put to death, kill. You might think, well, that's pretty extreme, but so is the corrupting deceptive, and deadly power of sin. Sometimes we need to be reminded just how deadly sin really is. 
you may or may not have read or known somebody uh, who tries to domesticate a wild animal. They may take a lion cub, they may take a bear cub, and they try to make it a pet. But more often than not, what happens when you do that with a wild animal? That pet grows into what it is. It grows into a dangerous wild animal that cannot be tamed. And quite often we hear that this furry, or at least formerly furry, lovable, cute little baby animal grows into something a lot less cute that turns on and then tries to injure or kill its owner. Like wild animals, sin cannot be domesticated. We can't make sin our pet. We cannot allow ourselves to get comfortable with it. Sin is like chocolate-covered poison. Think about that analogy for a moment. You may know that the disease of leprosy damages the nerves, which makes the person with leprosy unable to feel pain. And this often results in terrible injuries. Well, sin is very similar. Sin is like leprosy of the heart. It makes our hearts dead to the warnings of Holy Spirit conviction. Sin divides our hearts. Sin disintegrates our souls. And sin warps the image of God that's within us. Choosing sin will never make us whole. It only makes us less human, less ourselves, and less what God really intended for us to be. Another quote from the book, License to Kill, sin is poised to attack your faith at any moment. Sometimes it bears its fangs and strikes in a surprise attack. Sometimes it's cunning enough to play dead and subtle enough to pose as something good. But either way, sin is wired to kill. Slowly, cleverly, when you're not paying attention, sin will squeeze the faith, love, and holiness right out of you. This is the nature of sin. Left unchecked, it always destroys. So if sin's intention toward all of us and it is, is destructive. If it's destructive, then we must return the favor. We must kill it before it kills us. Kill or be killed. And we must be brutal. And we have to be brutally honest with ourselves in doing so. 17th century Pastor John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's clear that either your sins must die or you must die. That's the message of Romans 8.13 that we just read a moment ago, isn't it? Let me read that again. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Most of us don't think much about actually killing something or someone. Though actually, if you think about it, most of us see a fair amount of killing in the movies, on television, but how do you kill something? Well, let's think about something that most of us would be happy to kill rather than one of those cute, furry little animals. Let's think about a snake. It's a lot easier to think about killing something like a snake rather than something that's kind of cute and cuddly, which sin often appears to be. But there are probably a lot of ways you could kill a snake. You can crush its head with a big rock or a big stick. You can starve it. You can burn it. You can drown it. You can cut off its head. But whatever method you choose, you kill something by depriving it of something that it needs to live. Brains, food, air, a hospitable environment. You know what? We have to do the very same thing with sin in our heart. We have to weaken it 
by taking away the things that allow that sin to live on in our hearts, the things that give it strength inside of us. We have to quit feeding it. We have to quit allowing it to breathe. We have to quit allowing blood to flow to the vital organs of that sin in our lives. We have to quit giving it opportunities to thrive inside of us. Again, the Apostle Paul, still in the book of Romans, gives us some helpful counsel along these lines in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, which says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Don't keep providing your sinful flesh with what it needs to survive and to thrive. Now let's back up again for a moment, and I'd like to take a few minutes to take a closer look at the context of the two passages we read earlier. The primary verse from Romans 8, which is on your cover this morning, but let me read a few surrounding verses in context, and I want to read it from another translation to give us a few more nuances of this passage. We're going to begin with verse 12 of Romans 8. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So Paul tells us that because we're no longer slaves to sin, we're not obliged to do, we don't have to do what our sin nature, still alive and kicking inside of us, tells us to do. We are able to obey the voice of God and not the voice of sin inside us. Yes, we're tempted. We're fools to think that we're not, but we don't have to sin. In fact, he tells us that if we do what our sin nature tells us to do, it will only lead to death. And here's where Paul begins to tell us the solution. At the end of verse 13, he writes, but if through the power of the Spirit, that's a key phrase, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. So again, this is a commandment. If we're not certain of that, we can see the even more imperative reading of the same ideas in Colossians 3. Colossians 3, chapter 5, which we read earlier, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Of course, here, what is earthly in us is our sin nature, our old self. And if there's any doubt about that, he lists in Colossians several individual sins. Let me read this passage again in more context. Uh, I'm going to start with verse 5, but we're going to read through verse 10 of Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he lists these sins, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, and when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, some of us might feel pretty safe when Paul begins to list, by way of illustration, the kinds of things that he lists as earthly sins, earthly behavior, which refers to those specific kinds of sin that illustrate our sin nature. But many others of us will also see ourselves even in that early list that he gives us 
in verse 5 when he says, here's some of the kinds of things I'm talking about. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. But if we somehow escape that list and think, hey, we're doing pretty well here, we're still not off the hook because, first of all, this wasn't intended to list every kind of sin that indicates our sin nature. What's more, we might not do so well with the next list of sin. He gives a few verses later, revealing the sin nature that we need to put to death. Here's where I think most of us would have a problem getting through this list and saying, I'm not in that list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. Paul tells us in Romans 7 that our new self, that's the one that's redeemed in Christ, is the real you. Our old self is the one that practiced, past tense, practiced these kinds of things. I can remember that when I was 16 and I accepted Christ, I have to be really honest with you and tell you I had a real potty mouth. I could swear like a sailor. As Paul writes here in Colossians, it was obscene talk. That was my mouth. I was a pretty good kid otherwise, but I could swear with the best of them. Without ever having read this particular passage of Scripture or other passages talking about obscene language, and without anybody ever telling me that this kind of talk was not consistent with my new faith, the first thing the Lord cleaned up in me was my language. One day I just noticed I wasn't using this foul language anymore, which I used to fairly regularly employ in pretty much everyday conversation with my friends, never with my folks. But here's the interesting and also the troubling thing. In our culture, this kind of language is so common, it's more prevalent now than ever before. It's hard to completely avoid hearing this language. We hear it everywhere, don't we? And I've found that because of this reality, that part of my sin nature that I thought was dead and buried is showing signs of life. These words that I haven't used in years are now popping into my head. And since all sin always starts in our minds first, even before it becomes action, I'm very aware now that I must pick up a very big Holy Spirit baseball bat and bash this particular sin in the brains, bash it to death again. John Stott writes, it is as if having nailed our old nature to the cross, we keep wistfully returning to the scene of its execution. We begin to fondle it, to caress it, to long for its release, even to try to take it down again from the cross. We need to learn to leave it there. We, when some jealous or proud or malicious or impure thought invades our mind, we must kick it out at once. It is fatal to begin to examine it and consider whether we are going to give in to it or not. We have declared war on it. We are not going to resume negotiations. We have settled the issue for good. We are not going to reopen it. We have crucified the flesh. We are never going to draw the nails. Sin is deadly, and sin is persistent. So again, we have to be absolutely brutal in killing our old man, in killing every vestige of that sin nature in our lives, even recognizing that this is a process that never ends. In other words, we never arrive at sinless perfection this side of eternity. Nevertheless, that does not lessen the force of Paul's admonition to us here. Put to death our sin nature. Kill it. Mortify it. If we don't, Scripture tells us, we can't grow in Christ. If we don't, we cannot grow in holiness. 
which is part and parcel of what it means to grow in Christ. The goal of mortification is a life of genuine holiness. This life results from the gradual weakening of sin's influence in our hearts. This is not the total removal of sin from our hearts because sinless perfection is one of the wonderful things we have to look forward to when we're in the presence of the Lord. So that means that our life on this earth is one of war. It's one of killing. We are involved in a lifelong battle, a real war. We see this referenced in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, where we are urged as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. This is a war, folks, and we must treat it as such. If we don't treat it as such, we cannot grow in Christ. And we see the end result. If we never put sin to death, we see the end result is death for us. We face another challenge when we speak about killing sin, about killing our old man. How do we take something that Paul is clearly telling us to do and reconcile that with the reality that Jesus spoke of when he said, without me, you can do nothing? How do we take the reality of the grace of God, which is something we cannot earn, something we do not deserve, and reconcile that with a command here to do something? In this case, specifically, to kill my old man. Paul recognized that this could be a little bit of a conundrum for us by clearly telling us the primary means for this killing that we're supposed to do. At the end of Romans 8.13, we read, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit. By the Spirit. The Holy Spirit living inside of us as believers in Christ is a key weapon for us given against sin. God's given us this weapon. You know, we can try to fashion knives or bombs or guns or clubs or baseball bats of our own making, but for the express purpose of killing that sin inside of us. But these weapons will not work against sin. Two verses come to mind. I'm guessing some of you have already thought at least of the first one from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, which tells us, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. That's God's power to destroy strongholds. Now, I realize we usually think of this passage as a spiritual warfare passage, but if our ongoing battle against sin is not also spiritual warfare, then I don't know what is. Can we all agree that sin can be a stronghold in our lives? Paul tells us that the weapons we fight with are God's weapons, not any weapon we try to create or use on our own in our own strength. And then in another passage of Scripture, we read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we're being transformed, this passage tells us, changed. And that transformation includes, must include, I believe, more and more death to sin. But how does this transformation happen? Well, it tells us. This transformation, this for this, comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
It's only as we consider the wondrous good news of the gospel. And that's what he's talking about when he says, beholding the glory of the Lord, as Peter tells us. It's only as we do that that we are transformed into his image. And that's where, as we noted earlier, our mortification of sin must start. The gospel must be the foundation for that mortification. And as we consider the truth of the gospel, the, ma- the amazing reality that in his mercy, God redeemed us in Christ, how can we do anything other than believe and fully expect that the same God who was willing to pay that awful price for the forgiveness of sins will also equip us to kill the power of sin in our lives? So here's another both and in scripture. We see those sometimes, don't we? They're not either or, they're both and. Scripture doesn't call us to passivity. It calls us not only to kill sin, but let's think of some other things Scripture tells us to do. To run the race set before us, to walk in the Spirit, to flee from sin, to pursue godly virtues. All of these scriptural admonitions use active verbs. That means it's something we do. Scripture does not present the work of the Spirit as that which relieves us of the need for effort, but as that which empowers our effort. Amen? So our role is to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Again, quoting the Puritan John Owen, he said, the Spirit works in us and with us, not against us or without us. So one way we can actively cooperate with his work is to actively seek God for more grace. A preacher named G. Campbell Morgan said, that we know we cannot control the spirit any more than we can control the wind, but like a sailor at sea, we can set our sails to catch the spirit's wind when he blows. God has given us various ways of setting our sails, so to speak, using this analogy. He has given us what we could call means of grace. In other words, these are things that he has already provided to us as ways that we can access and appropriate the grace of God in our lives. The most essential ones are prayer and the Word of God. We read in Psalm 119, beginning with verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Coach Paul, this is the foundational verse in Bible Bowl, isn't it? Verse 11 here, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Keeping our way pure, as the psalmist writes, includes killing sin. And you kill sin by guarding your way, which means that's the way you live. That's what it's talking about. And you do that according to the word of God. So we must read the word. We must think about or meditate on the word. We have to memorize the word. And we have to prayerfully let it perform its work in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. In John 15, Jesus says, he's divine and we're the branches. And he says, apart from him, we can do nothing. We abide in Jesus when his words abide in us. We read that in John chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John Owen said that prayer and meditation on scripture are two things which are especially apt to weaken and subdue the whole law of sin at its heart. And believers should give particular attention to these all their lives. 
They are health-restoring remedies against the disease of sin. So we abide in Jesus when his words abide in us. We're in Christ when his words abide in us, when they live in us. And when Paul describes the believer's warfare against spiritual forces of evil, what does he exhort us to do? He exhorts us to put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6, including the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. But let's be honest here. You know, for some of us hearing this today, this is a rather disappointing answer to the question, how can I kill sin in my life? In other words, I've heard this before, folks. I've heard this before. Here's yet another admonition to read the Word and to pray. Well, think about this. The truth is that we sell ourselves short in the spiritual disciplines. Like lifelong dieters who are always looking for a magic pill instead of developing a long-term lifestyle of exercise and nutrition, we approach spiritual disciplines wrongly, expecting overnight results and quitting when our quiet times don't deliver. Isn't that true? You ever, uh, weekends and late nights, you see all those commercials for all those weight loss pills? Man, if, if any one of those worked, they would be hot sellers, wouldn't they, right? But that's what we want. We want that magic pill. We want that simple solution. As G.K. Chesterton once said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. So when your experience doesn't line up with the testimony of other believers, and especially with that of Scripture, don't be too quick to write off that testimony as unhelpful. So though we are absolutely dependent on God's grace to empower us, his grace makes us active. It doesn't make us passive. He's given us his means of grace. He's given us his word. He's given us the privilege of prayer. And he can and will enable us by his spirit to do what we need to do to make progress in killing our old man. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 12, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Meditation on the word, prayer, these things strengthen our faith in the sin-killing power of the cross. The only power that is effective for killing sin is the grace of Christ, purchased on the cross and applied to our hearts through the Holy Spirit. But this power comes to us through faith, and faith is nourished and strengthened through the word and prayer. Of course, this does not mean we can't do other practical things to kill our old man. There's a lot of practical things. That's not what I'm talking about here this morning. They're out there. But the word of God and prayer are immensely practical. We tend to think of them as spiritual things. They're immensely practical, and we can apply these in our lives. They're foundational to everything else we might do. All the other things we can layer on top, and I'm not saying those things are bad things. The word of God and prayer are foundational to anything else we might do to try to kill the old man. In closing, let's also remember this. We can meditate and pray on our own, but we can meditate and pray with each other. Don't ignore this wonderful community of believers that God has given us here at TCF. Don't neglect the ongoing help of your leaders here in this church, too. One of the most neglected sources of grace 
in our self-sufficient and very individualistic culture is the church. Sometimes we forget that most of Paul's letters were written to churches. So when Paul exhorts us to kill our sins and grow in grace, he's speaking in a corporate context. He's speaking to all of us as individuals, but he's speaking us to us, uh, us, to us as a group as well. We pursue holiness together. Let's be active and let's be consistent in killing our old man. Let's encourage one another in this. And let's allow the word to be truly living and active and sharp in our lives individually and corporately. Now, this was a hard sermon to study because it brought deep conviction to me. It helped me see how many parts of my old man are still uh, working hard inside me, still trying very hard to kill me, to bring me death, as Scripture says. And the other thing that's a hard thing to do when it comes to preaching a message like this is because at first blush, I feel like a real hypocrite, you know? I feel like a real hypocrite because I am so deeply infested with sin. And when I read this passage, that's not funny, Steve, don't laugh at that. And Barb, don't say amen. But I am... I am so deeply infested with sin, and I recognize it. As I get into the Word and I read about these things, and I realize, man, that's me. That's me. But nevertheless, a hypocrite is somebody who says one thing, not only somebody who says one thing and does another, okay, but somebody who says one thing and doesn't care about doing anything different. So in that sense, I'm not a hypocrite because I want to kill my old man. And my guess is this morning that after hearing this word, some of you are in that same boat. So we're not going to have a long altar call this morning, but if you're in that same boat and you identify yourself in some of these things, I wouldn't want you to stand with me and we're going to pray. So we're not going to wait. We're going to ask you to stand now and let's pray together. I'm standing with you. I have to stand because I'm in the pulpit. But if I was seated down there, I'd be standing too. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the means of grace you've given us to kill our old man. We're grateful for this very clear admonition to put to death our sinful self. Father, we're also grateful that we see ourselves so clearly in uh, Romans 7 where we see that this is an on ongoing battle. And even a saint as great as the Apostle Paul struggled with these things. That gives me comfort knowing, Lord, that this is not just for me, Lord, but this is even for saints who have served you and advanced your kingdom powerfully throughout history, Lord God. So we come to you now, Father God, asking for your grace, knowing that your grace is the only foundation on which we can build the killing power to kill our old man, Lord God. And Lord, that you can give us weapons that we need and that these weapons are not fleshly, they're not carnal, but they're mighty and they're powerful by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, give us these weapons and help us to wield these weapons against our sin, to beat sin to death by your power invested in us, by your Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. Lord, help, us to, help that to be a hallmark of each of us as individuals and in this body as a whole. As we pursue holiness together, Lord, help us to put to death our flesh, to put to death our old man, and to be renewed and transformed into the image and likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, day by day. Give us the grace to do this, Father. Give us the persistence to do this. 
and to not give up knowing that this is a lifelong battle, but knowing that your spirit is with us as we do this together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's everybody, the rest of you stand and we're going to dismiss now. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. Thank you, Father, for the fellowship of the saints and the unity of the spirit that we experience in this body. We're grateful for this time together, for the privilege of worshiping you and bringing our prayers and petitions to you and hearing your word preached today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're dismissed.